0: Well, the passage that, uh, that I want to read again, this is not really an expository message, um, but the passage that I'm going to be reading um, really deals with this, uh, with this principle, and so I'd ask if you would please stand as we read together uh, Romans 3, uh, verses 1 to, well, we'll go over the whole chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? What then, Are are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their path are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now... This was to show God's righteousness because He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of our Lord to be seated. What was the worst atrocity that was ever committed? Some would say the Crusades, it's politically correct to, uh, to, to counter the, the concerns over Islamic terrorism to, to say, well, the Crusades are, are, are one of the most horrific and, and unjust events that has, that has ever occurred. And there's no doubt that there were horrific atrocities that took place during the Crusades. Over the, those 177 years, there were, were over a million people killed on, on all sides, from Muslims, Jews, and Christians. So it was definitely the the Crusades were definitely a great injustice. Some would say the Holocaust, in which six million Jews were killed under Hitler's final solution, most of them in in Nazi concentration camps. Another grave injustice. Some would say the communist revolutions that, that led to 50 million dead in Russia and 45 million dead in China and millions more around the world, another horrific injustice. And all of these are horrible in terms of sheer numbers of defenseless lives lost. But clearly the worst injustice by far in this context is the 1.5 billion babies that have been killed around the world since 1980, 1.5 billion. 50 million children each and every year. So in the horror of, of this injustice and, and all of those injustices, and the fact that God continues to allow these things to, to take place, it would lead some to ask the question, is God just? Others look at their life and say, they say, well, I don't deserve this illness. I don't deserve this heartache or this financial crisis, or this fill-in-the-blank? How can God allow injustice to happen to me? Maybe you've asked that question. And others will look at one side of God's character. They, as as D.A. Carson points out, they have difficulty, little difficulty, believing the love of God, but they have far more difficulty believing in the justice of God, the wrath of God, and the non-contradictory truthfulness of the omniscient God, and they wonder, how can God be loving or just and send people, anyone, to hell? Well, maybe you're sitting here this morning asking some of these same questions. But the first thing we need to do is to, to ask what it means for God to be just. Justice is about moral equity. It's about bringing the right verdict and the right sentence for every moral wrong so in order for God to be just he must render the right verdict and the right sentence every single time if you want to understand God's justice you need to look at God's word you turn in your Bibles please to Genesis um, chapter 18 verse 20 Genesis 1820. Here we have a a conversation taking place between God and Abraham. And in this, God is is discussing what he's going to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, two very wicked cities. He says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah indeed is great and their sin exceedingly grave. And, And so the Lord tells Abraham What he's going to do that he's going to deal with it and Abraham knows what this means but Abraham is concerned because his nephew whom he loves his nephew Lot is living in that city and so he says to the Lord he he says would you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked he went on what about if there are 50 righteous people would you sweep it away and not spare it for the sake of 50 people Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? So Abraham appeals to God's justice knowing that God would act justly. He knows that God would punish justly and that God would also save justly. You know the story. You know that the Lord spared Lot and his family from the destruction of those two cities. Peter, in 2 Peter 2, 6-10, uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's justice. And please, now turn there. So, kind of the other end of your Bible. Almost almost to the end. Just before 1 John. 2 Peter 2, verses 6-10. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Read verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And you can see from the context that he's speaking specifically of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the wickedness that was taking place there and also the righteousness of, of Lot. Um, of Lot, who was, was Abraham's nephew. So the Lord destroys the unrighteous cities, but delivers Lot and his family. Throughout the scriptures, you can see that God is just. Deuteronomy 32:4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Isaiah 5.16 The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Jeremiah 9.24 Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the scriptures clearly testify that God is just. But as we've talked about with, with God's attributes over the past several weeks, that, that his, his attributes don't operate in isolation from each other. That, that God's attributes work in concert. And so God's justice is not independent from His other attributes. And so God's justice is the expression of God's holiness and His righteousness. God is committed to His holiness, so He always carries out justice. He cannot let one sin go unpunished and still be considered just. This is not because of, of some law that was was external to God, as, as some standard that he must adhere to, because the, he himself is the standard. God himself is the standard of righteousness. And so he always acts in a way that is just because He is perfectly just. He's eternally, infinitely, immutably just. But we also need to consider God's wrath as we consider His justice because God's wrath is a necessary part of God's justice. So because God is just, He must exercise wrath against those who commit injustice. But we have a a seeming conundrum. We have have something that that seems to be a, a paradox. Because not only is God holy and just and righteous, but He is also loving and merciful and gracious. Stephen Charnock says that justice would draw the sword and drench it in the blood of the offender. But mercy would stop the sword and turn it from the breast of the sinner. As we'll see, God did not stop there with merely stopping the sword. In his love and mercy and grace, he will also bless those who he deems righteous and protect his children. Psalm 37, 28, For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. But when we look around, we, we really don't see much justice, do we? When we think about the things that we, that we talked about in, in history and what's going on at the moment, we really don't see much justice. We, we know that the history of the world is a tale of death and destruction, of murder and <coughs> oppression. And apart from the flood, the, the 20th century is described as undoubtedly the bloodiest time in all of history. Hundreds of millions were killed during the 20th century in war and genocide, not to mention again the close to 50 million babies that are killed each year globally. And that has has continued into the 21st century. The Lord tarries, we will see the 21st century will get the new dubious honor of being the most bloody century in all of history. So, So how do you make sense of this? How do you you comprehend that that, that a just God, who is also sovereign, he's also in control as we've seen, how can a just God allow such atrocities to take place? You need to understand first of all here that that God is not to blame for sin. God is not to blame for sin. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither God is God the author of sin, nor is violence not offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So what does that mean? It really talking me about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That that God has ordained in His own holy will whatever is going to take place. But the other side is is also true that, that man in his own fallen nature sins according to his own and her own sinful desires. And so God is, is neither the author of sin, that God is not responsible for the, the sins of men and women, nor is the responsibility of men and women for the sins that they choose to do, undermined either. James 1.13 says, that Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted of evil, and He Himself tempts no one. And 1 John 1.5, we talked about this last week. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when we consider what's happening around us, we realize that the world is a dangerous place. But it wasn't created that way. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and so every human being born after them was born with a sinful nature with a a natural predisposition to choose to sin. Sin comes as natural to a sinner as breathing to all of us. So conflict became part of the fabric of human relationships. Violence and oppression followed suit, and it wasn't very long before the first murder took place when Abel killed, or when Cain killed his brother Abel. And Abel was doing this in accordance with his own sinful nature. He chose to kill his brother, and so he is guilty of that murder. Again, this is a paradox. We're talking about about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility next question that would, would come from this is, but if God is sovereign, then why doesn't he do something about it? If God is sovereign, why, why didn't he... He, he knew what, what Abel was going to do. Why didn't he, he kill Abel before Abel had a chance to kill his brother? And, and we think about why didn't, why didn't God cause, cause Hitler to die before he was able to do what he did? Or, or think about, about any number of the injustices that we see around us If God is sovereign and just, why doesn't He do something about it? Well, the first reason is because it's tied to God's mercy. God is waiting for His elect to repent. Isaiah 30.18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice, Blessed are those who wait for him. So the Lord is is, is waiting. He's waiting to to be able to to, to bring down justice because he wants his his elect to repent. When God promised Abraham in in Genesis 15-16 that he was going to give the land of Canaan to his descendants, he told Abraham that his descendants would, would come back and take the land of Canaan 400 years later for the iniquity of the Amorites, he said, is not yet complete. And, and you can read in the, in the, the scriptures of the, the Amorites that these were a very wicked people. And for 400 years, God put up with their sin. 400 years of wanton rebellion against God. If somebody were to sin against you, you, know, you could maybe offer them mercy one or two times, but if they continued to, to sin against you grievously again and again and again, how would you respond? I think most of us, and in fact all of us, without God's grace and mercy in our lives, would, would respond with, with extreme wrath. God waited for 400 years. He was patient with the Amorites. But when his judgment was delivered, it came swiftly and it was without mercy. The Lord hardened their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy. We read about that in Joshua 11. So the Lord does not come speedily with his justice because he is merciful, but also because he is slow to anger. In Nahum 1, 3, that, that quote is from the wheels of God's justice turn slowly, perhaps from our perspective, imperceptibly. We, we don't see God's justice at work, and so, so we can claim that it, it doesn't happen. But God's justice is moving forwards. His wheels of justice are turning nonetheless. Again from Stephen Charnock. The longer a stone is in falling, the more it bruises and grinds to powder. There's a greater treasure of wrath laid up by the abuses of patience. And so the cup of God's wrath is being filled. It's being filled upon the nations around us. And apart from God's grace, it's being filled up on us. And because of this, because the wicked don't see God's justice, they get more bold in their sin. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 8.1 says, because the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So don't ever make the mistake of thinking that because God's justice hasn't been delivered, that justice isn't coming. When I I talk about my own testimony and, and the life that I spent in, in years of, of active sin and in in immorality and in in drug abuse. For the first several years, I didn't see the consequences of my sin. And at least not that not in any tangible way that would cause me to, to wake up and see what I was doing. That, that because of the hardness of my heart I couldn't I couldn't see what I was doing. I couldn't see the way that I was sinning against God. I couldn't see the way that I was sinning against those around me. And, and I enjoyed the lifestyle that I was living. I didn't realize that I was heaping up laugh for myself. Until that, that day when I, I really began to see and it, and it left me understanding that I deserved to die because of my sin. That's true of all of us. When God's justice comes, it is swift and it is final. The first half of, of Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Death here does not refer simply to the end of life. It is the, it is the, the eternal death. It is a death that never dies. It is an eternal fire that will never be quenched. People know in their hearts that God is just, and they know in their hearts that that He will punish sin, and and so their ignorance is willful ignorance. It's willful ignorance. The the problem is is not that people denied or disbelieved the wrath of God, but that even though they knew the justice of God, the judgment of God against sin, they they continued in sin and took pleasure in those who did likewise. Romans 1.32 Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that there is no doctrine that is more generally abhorrent to man as that of God's wrath. He said that in modern history, rather than ignoring God's wrath, men dispute it and reject it. So there is a more active disobedience against it. They know in their hearts that they deserve God's wrath, but they're willfully ignorant. They have turned their backs on it. Acts 24.15 says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the just. Likewise, Daniel 12.2 says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Psalm 7.12 and 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his ready bow, has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Because God is just, He will exercise wrath. Because He is just, His wrath is a necessary response to sin. God cannot and He will not let one sin go unpunished. Rather than diminish His holiness, it is because of His commitment to holiness that that God's wrath is a natural and necessary response to sin. John Owen defines God's wrath as a constant and immutable will of God in avenging and punishing by a just punishment every injury, transgression, and sin. The wrath of man is is often uncontrolled and unmeasured and unjust, and the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, Genesis 1.20, but the wrath of God is exactly the opposite. Robert Raymond explains that God's wrath must not be construed in any measure as capricious or uncontrolled or irrational fury. Nor is God himself malicious or vindictive or spiteful. God's wrath is simply his holy indignation and settled opposition of his holiness to sin. God's wrath is his perfect measured response to sin. Jonathan Edwards in his His famous, or some would say infamous, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, warned unbelievers. He said, The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow is made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. When Jonathan Edwards preached that that sermon in Enfield, that people were were so convicted by the Holy Spirit that that some were were literally falling on the ground and holding onto the pews in, in fear that the earth was going to open up and swallow them because they had been given a glimpse of the wrath of God against sinners. We tend to think that that it's unfair that that God would only save some people. But the real question is why should God save any? Why should God save any? Anselm of Canterbury asked, How dost thou spare the wicked if thou art all just and supremely just? And that's really the issue of of Romans 3.25 that we read, that how can God demonstrate his justice because he had passed over former sins? So what's going to happen to someone like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot or the abortionist or the serial killer? Now we tend to think of people like that as deserving hell. We we think of of those people as, as those who would deserve eternal punishment. Many here will remember serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer who brutally killed 17 people. We can think, surely someone like that deserves hell. But God can forgive. He can even forgive someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. Apparently Jeffrey Dahmer repented And came to faith according to the testimony of the pastor who baptized him. Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, he he committed horrific atrocities. But if this pastor is right in in his testimony, then we will see Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven. So the question we should ask is: here's not, how could God forgive someone like that and still be just? but really we need to ask, how can God forgive someone like me? How can God forgive someone like you? And to begin to understand your own sinfulness, you won't bother trying to compare yourself to someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, because you are guilty too. And you might not be a serial killer, but you are guilty of a much worse sin. You are guilty of rebellion against the Most High God. And for those who are not in Christ, your entire life is set on self and sin. You are pursuing your lies, your lust, your will, not God's. So the question isn't how God could forgive someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. The question is how could God forgive someone like you? How could God forgive someone like me? i talking to the, to the children. I, I asked them to, to consider a teacher who would, would see a, another teacher stealing, or another student rather stealing something of theirs and, and not doing it, anything about it. Let's just think for a second, if, if you were, were going to the bank on Tuesday morning, and, and as you walk into the bank, you see there's blood everywhere. Someone has, has robbed the bank, and he's, he's killed everybody in the bank, and as you walk in, he kills the last person. And you, you wrestle him to the ground, and, and you you call the police. The police come, and they, they arrest him. and. And he he goes before the judge, and, and of course you'd be you'd be brought forward as a witness, and you're you're there in the courtroom as the, the judge says to this to this killer Well, we know you did it. We have witnesses, you confess to the crime, but I'm a forgiving judge. And I'm gonna let you go. How would you respond? that judge. You you would arguably arguably be as angry at that judge as you would be against the, the criminal who committed those crimes. You need to understand that because God is just, he must punish sin. So the question remains, how can God be just and forgive someone like you and someone like me? Human beings have a very keen sense of justice. We're, we're very quick to judge something as right and something else as wrong. In fact, if, if maybe you've been accused of being judgmental. A person who's called judgmental is making a judgment. We make judgments all the time. But apart from God's grace, we always draw the line in the wrong place. Especially when it comes to ourselves and our behavior and our sin. People commonly tend to think of of God's justice as being like like a cosmic scale where, where God weighs their good deeds against their bad deeds, and they always think that the scale is going to be tipped in favor of their good deeds. But when you understand God's righteousness, when you understand who God is, then there is no goodness on your scale apart from Christ. It is weighted completely on the side of your sin. You've heard the saying that justice is blind. In our legal system, justice is represented as a lady blindfolded and holding a balance scale. But God's justice is omniscient. He sees everything, every deed done in secret, every wrong thought, every wrong motive. God sees it all, and it it exposes us all as guilty, every single one of us. The writing is on the wall for every human being guilty. In Daniel 5, when when Belshazzar um, had a feast and used the, the, the... um, emblems of the temple, use the cups from the temple and the, and the plates from the temple for his, his pagan feast. There became a, a disembodied hand that wrote many, many tekel harsin, which which means you are weighed in the balance and found wanting. The reality is for all of us left to ourselves, we are weighed in the balance and found wanting. That's why it's good to use the Ten Commandments in in evangelism, because because it provides the mirror so that people can see their sin, that when they look at the holy commandments of God, that they realize that they're all guilty. We're all guilty under God's moral law. We've all been weighed in the balance and are found wanting. So again, how can God be just and forgive someone like you or me? At the beginning I asked, what is the worst injustice that has ever taken place? The ones that are listed were all horrific in, in terms of the number of lives lost. But there is one injustice that is immeasurably worse. This is Jesus, that Jesus Christ, the only one who is completely innocent, God the Son, being killed by sinful men. The crucifixion is unquestionably the worst worst injustice that has ever or will ever occur. Hear what Peter says in his sermon from Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of men. So here you can see God's sovereignty, that that God had foreordained that this was going to take place. It was His plan and His foreknowledge. But you also see that sinful men are responsible for their actions. God did not force them to kill Jesus. Nor did He force Jeffrey Dahmer to commit his atrocities. Nor did did He force you to commit yours. Sinners do what is in their wicked hearts. All sin must be punished. All sin must be punished. Otherwise God ceases to be just. And all sin is punished. And all sin is either placed on Christ or remains on you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That's the heart of the gospel. That God in his eternal plan he knew what was going to happen. He knew there was going to be a fall. And, and he, he knew that he was going to send his son to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. As Jesus Christ was punished in the place of his bride, when Jesus was on the cross, as as agonizing as the, the physical torments of the crucifixion were, what was far worse is, is that the, the Holy Lamb of God, that God the Son for the first and only time in, in all of creation became the sin-bearer. The Holy God bore our sin. What was even worse than that is that, that the Father punished His Son in our place. That Jesus Christ didn't just bear our sin, He bore the penalty for our sin. And then for the very first time and the only time in all of history, in all of eternity, there was a division between the Godhead. As the father turned his back on his son, as the son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how God can forgive you, and how God can forgive me. But you need to understand that, that your guilt put Christ on the cross. Your guilt put Christ on the cross. Because God is just, he must punish sin. And you are as guilty of the death of Christ as though you were the one driving the nails. We talked about this Wednesday, about that, that the painter Rembrandt who painted himself at the scene of the crucifixion, at the foot of the cross, raising the cross, he was saying, remember I was saying, I'm guilty for the death of Jesus, that I did it. I did it. You did it. We all did it. You can only understand God's justice in light of the cross. Romans 3:26. We read that it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only way that that God could at the same time be just and justify guilty people is to provide the, the remedy, to provide the one who would take the punishment in their place. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that we can be the righteousness of God. That is the core of the Gospel. Henry Blocher explains that that evil is conquered as evil because God turns it back upon itself. He makes the supreme crime the murder of the only righteous person, the very operation that abolishes sin. The maneuver is utterly unprecedented. No more complete victory could be imagined. God responds in the indirect way that is perfectly suited to the ambiguity of evil. He entraps the deceiver in his own wiles. Evil, like a judoist, takes advantage of the power of good which it perverts. The Lord, like a supreme champion, replies by using the very grip of the opponent. God conquers sin by the sin of wicked men. And so by this one injustice, God's justice was served. Remember what Stephen Charnock said? I quoted this at the beginning, that justice would draw the sword and drench it in the blood of the offender, but mercy would stop the sword and turn it from the breast of the sinner. But God didn't stop the sword. God didn't stop the sword. He plunged it into the heart of his own son. God plunged the sword of his wrath into the heart of his son for us. Like the arrow that Jonathan Edwards spoke of. He didn't stop the arrow. He let it fly into the heart of his son. And the son did this willingly out of love for the father and love for us. This is how God can be just and the justifier of those who have their faith in Jesus. Let's close with the words of John Piper. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Let me say that again. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel by which we are saved. This is the gospel by which, if you're sitting here this morning as an unbeliever, you too can be saved. In a a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. This is a a picture of what Jesus did in shedding His own lifeblood for our sins. This is an invitation for you, if you are not in Christ, to repent of your sins, to come to Christ, to have your sin placed on Him and His righteousness given to you. This is the gospel of the justice and mercy of God.